Welcome to the Partners for Better Communities podcast with the Virginia Department of Housing and Community Development. The work from home revolution is just getting started and causing people to reevaluate where they call home. The year-long Creating Community Vitality series encourages you to think broadly, inclusively, and creatively about how your community can welcome an increasingly mobile workforce. We hope these conversations inspire you to take action at home. And today we are talking about infrastructure. We have talked about housing, we have talked about some small businesses, we have more very specific topics coming up, but this month we are talking broadly about infrastructure and everything from broadband, uh, water, wastewater, utilities. I think that the webinar is going to cover those pretty well. So in our conversation today with Rebecca Richardson with Virginia Lisk, we may take a, a novel, creative 21st century approach to talking about infrastructure and all of the things that that can mean for a community. Becca is an economic development and community finance professional, proudly hailing from a working-class, multi-generational household outside of Boston. She is passionate about people and communities. Most recently, Richardson served the Commonwealth of Virginia's Opportunity Zones as Director of Project Development for Opportunity Virginia, an initiative led by Virginia Community Capital and funded by Virginia Housing. She spent her prior 15 years in the financial services industry, from private equity to municipal bonds, compliance, and mutual funds. And Becca has a BA in economics from Barnard College of Columbia University, and she enjoys front porch chatting and outdoor adventures with her wife and two children here on the north side of Richmond. So I also am happy to count Becca as, as a neighbor here in Richmond. So Becca, that is a, a really a kind of diverse background there. Tell us how growing up in a working class, multi-generational household outside of Boston made you passionate about people and communities. First of all, thank you very much for having me on the podcast. It's so interesting hearing someone read your bio out loud. When I was growing up, it, it quite literally felt like I was being raised by a village. If it weren't for my grandmother being able to hold down the fort, if you will, and be the, the one person in this very large family, she had eight children, um, to own a home that could then become a home base for my mother and my brother and me um, and any other of my aunts and uncles and their children at any time of need. Um, if it weren't for her creating sort of this, this center, the this center of this universe for all of us, um, I don't know what our family world would have looked like, but we were lucky enough to have her. And because of that, I was influenced in so many ways by so many different people. And my mother as a young single mom 
making a very low income didn't have to be all the things all the time for me or my brother. We got to benefit from our aunts and uncles taking care of us, and we got to benefit from uh, being with our cousins. There were, you know, we were sort of, uh, there was just a swarm of us. Um, there was a time when my mom and my aunt, her sis, she and her sister-in-law, rented an apartment in a town called, a city called Lawrence, Massachusetts. And the two, the two sister-in-laws and their five children, including me, lived together while their husbands were in prison at the same time. And that was an experience that was not traumatic for me. That's an experience that I remember as something formative because I saw my mother as usual, um, leveraging her family relationships to give us the best experience in life that we could have. So that being said, what I learned from that and how it's influenced me in my career, there are two big things there. One is that, whew, um, the first part of my career, when you talk about the first 15 years being in finance, private equity, all these fancy things, that part of my career um, bloomed out of the less glamorous or less folksy side of my childhood, which was, it came out of a place of scarcity. And so I felt that it was important for me to prove to myself and to everyone that I could be financially independent in order to be successful. Um, and about five years ago, I realized that I felt like I was living a double life and I was going to work and working to, um, you know, in private equity with these particular funds I was working on, you had to be um, a, a certain level of investor. And I was working on helping them build wealth. And in my community at home on the weekends and at night, I was teaching my kids how to be productive and sincere members of our community. And that didn't, that felt in, inconsistent. So I had to make a change in my career. And what I had to do was let go of a feeling of scarcity. And I had to realize that by living in and truly being a member of my community, not just my family, but like the family that I've built in my community with my friends and my neighbors, um, that I could rely on them and they could rely on me. And I'm, I'm never going to go without that we're going to support each other in all the ways that we can. So that is what drives me in my work. And and what that looks like is finding a way to help communities empower themselves, individuals empower their, themselves by utilizing existing resources available to succeed. And my role is to help provide as many existing resources available as possible and to challenge my community partners to to be more creative and to think harder about 
what we're offering and how we're offering it and why we're offering it to whom and and the assumptions that are built into program design are they there because they're really adding value or are they there just because that's what we've always done and if it's what we've always done why have we always done it that way So that has to be one of the most profoundly personal reflections of how someone came to the place that they are in professionally and how what you are doing professionally really embodies um, who you are and, and the ethos that you have around life. So one of the things that I definitely heard from your response there too, and of course I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't bring it full circle to our topic today, is that you, there was just so much infrastructure evident in what you were talking about in terms of the intergenerational living. You, your mother had infrastructure, you and your siblings and your cousins and and the that family unit as the infrastructure that she needed in order to um keep things very um and i'm going to say normal um or maybe stable um consistent happy you know that all came from her having that infrastructure of family around her now I'm going to ask a, a maybe a less profound question, but you know that that will really come from your answer. Uh, tell us how you came to uh, work with Virginia Lisk, and uh, what Virginia Lisk does in communities. And I know that there are so many things that they do. So, however you choose to frame that. Sure. Um... I think just to provide some context, I'm going to give some bullet points on all of the things that LISC does because in different contexts, we can seem like we do one thing and other people know us as doing another thing. So let me, let me share who we are more broadly and then I'll share how, how I fit in. Um, Virginia LISC is part of a national nonprofit called LISC, which it's an acronym. It stands for Local Initiative Support Corporation. And we have regional offices all over the country, um, including in Virginia. We have one here in Richmond and we also have an office in Hampton Roads. Um, On a very fundamental level, LISC is a CDFI, a Community Development Financial Institution, which is a bank that has requirements to serve its local community in a number of different ways. Um, We also, we focus on affordable housing, economic development, community development, um, safety and justice. We have all kinds of work streams, but where, where we live in all of those places is we're, we're a networker or we are a, um, 
intermediary is probably the best way to describe us in that let's say there is funding that comes from one place for something let's say um a grant fund um and then there is a community that needs the funding we we help connect the two and sometimes we administrate programs um, we try to work through community partners as much as possible and that's both through and with community partners um, LISC Virginia we have six believe it or not financial opportunity centers in the region um, and what we do is we partner with existing nonprofits to serve as financial opportunity centers and we we help funnel HUD funding to those organizations to serve individuals in communities, um, whether it be through workforce development or increasing, helping improve credit scores or, I mean, you name it. And um, those are located in Charlottesville, in Richmond, in Petersburg, and there are several in Richmond. Um, so that's sort of the broad uh, LISC and LISC Virginia picture. What I do is economic development for, for LISC Virginia or Virginia LISC, however you want to call it. Um, when I was wrapping up my time at Virginia Community Capital, actually prior to that, um, I was lucky enough to partner with Jane Ferreira, our executive director, um, to work on a collaborative grant fund um, following the murder of George Floyd um, with various community partners. And it was the most, um, it was the most meaningful experience I've had in my career thus far, honestly, from, from, from a directing a program perspective. So um, following George Floyd's murder and the social justice demonstrations that followed, um, sort of in the middle of that, in a very casual way at first, um, myself and Leah Freemau from Virginia Community Capital, as well as Jane from LISC, and then Floyd Miller from Metropolitan Business League, um, Lisa Sims from Venture Richmond, um, we, and, 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 Ch and Chamber R RVA, all of us nonprofit partners got together and without any funding whatsoever, designed a, a program that would, um, that would make whole different um, businesses in Richmond that were affected by the social justice demonstrations to fix windows or um, clean up spray paint that they wanted to clean up um, and, and replace inventory, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we designed a program. Eventually it also included um, additional businesses that were impacted by the pandemic. Um, and we were able to get funding from uh, Altria, Dominion, Capital One, the Community Foundation, Robbins Foundation. And what that looked like was all of Richmond coming together to say we support our community and we also support um, what's going on in our community to change. And when I started doing that work, it's when I realized that while I did love working in opportunity zones, um, 
with Virginia Community Capital, I was ready to start getting uh, more, I wanted to dig in deeper um, with individuals and businesses and communities on a more personal level um, than I was able to do. So um, when when some space opened up on this team, I was very excited to call Jane and tell her that we have to work together. I'll do whatever it takes. <laughs> well, it sounds like, yeah, an opportunity of a lifetime to be able to work on a fund like that with that team and with that mission. Um, you know, in terms of infrastructure, I think we are all thinking more and more in terms of access. And again, for our conversation, I don't want to focus on on that kind of traditional infrastructure of the, the water, wastewater, um, even broadband. I know that is coming to the forefront of conversations more and more. Uh, but a lot of it really comes down to access and, you know, having that broadly available in the community. So I wanted to talk more, and this also goes back to the beginning of the conversation with your family unit and the infrastructure there, childcare as infrastructure. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And are you seeing that playing out in any of the work that LISC is doing in the communities that you all are serving? I have a lot of thoughts on that. If we don't have affordable childcare, then there's a, a chain is broken. Uh, there, there's a gap in the, in the chain of, of how a community is going to work because children need safe places to be and thrive during the day while parents or caregivers need to be able to work if they want to, to support their family and to enrich their brains. And my opinion is that it should be something that the community and the government work together to, to solve this dilemma of, of making it affordable. Um, there is a book written by a local person in Richmond. His name is Elliot Haspel. His full-time job is at the Robbins Foundation, and it's called Crawling Behind, America's Child Care Crisis and How to Fix It. And it has given me so many ideas um, and, and, and even policy ideas to advocate for. Um, as, a, as an individual that are out of the box, that help us think about childcare as something that um, everybody should have access to uh, regardless of what their economic status is. I wanted to, to address the topic of infrastructure in in Richmond and, and how I see it in my work. We work, the work that I do is very place-based. And so there are various places in this region that I focus on. Unfortunately, I can't focus on the whole region all at once. That's, that's really 
that's hard administratively, but so to give some examples right now, some two, two very specific areas that I'm focusing my work on this year are the Highland Park slash Brooklyn Park corridor in the north side of Richmond and also the historic Hull Street corridor in the south side of Richmond. Um, so using those as, example, as an example, and I'm going to show a little favoritism and choose my own neighborhood, um, the Highland Park, Brooklyn Park corridor as the prime, primary example here. Um, I think of it like we are an ecosystem here in this, in this community. And when I, when I think of an ecosystem, I mean, I have to visualize it. And so if I were to be standing in front of you and have a whiteboard in front of me, I would draw a picture of a butterfly, for example. And in the center of the butterfly, the body, let's say that's a commercial corridor. And that's where you have small locally owned businesses. And then let's think about the wings. So let's draw the wings of the butterfly. And those could be sort of the big areas of residential community, or those are the big areas of residential housing. So it could be multifamily, single family, all different kinds of housing. And then within those wings, you have the beautiful spots that belong on a butterfly. And you might have some retirement living. You might have some, um, you might have a health center that provides mental health, physical health stuff. You might have, you will have schools. You'll have hopefully financial opportunity centers, workforce um, type, let's edit out the workforce thing. Um, <laughs> you're gonna have cemeteries. You're gonna have all of the things that live in a community because people are, you're gonna have a hospital. You're gonna, people are born here. We grow up here. We are taught here and we live here. We have our careers here, hopefully. We also age here and we have to be taken care of at various parts of this life cycle. And so in this picture, you have also, let's say, the antennas with those little blobs at the end that you draw that I have no idea, like from an anatomy perspective, what those actually are. But like, let's, uh, let's say the antennas with the blobs, those are like the beacons, the community leaders, the thought leaders, whether it be like folks who have lived in the community for gener like multi-generations that share the history, the verbal history, that, that lead your, um, uh, what do you call it when you have a, a neighborhood group, that lead your neighborhood group meetings. Um, so in this ecosystem, all of the parts need to be nurtured. The small business owners need to be able to afford to live in the neighborhood. The neighborhood residents need to be able to afford to live in their houses or their apartments. They also need to be able to afford to shop along the commercial corridor. Um, the cemeteries need to be taken care of. You know, for example, there's one not far from here that my family and I have volunteered at. It's called, um, uh, why am I drawing a blank? It starts with a W. 
Um, there's a historically black cemetery nearby that is not a public cemetery just because of the history of Richmond and, and how public cemeteries were treated back then that is 30 acres and that is the burial spot, the final resting spot of 30,000 people, many of which have graves that have, or gravestones that have sunken into the ground whose families don't know where to find them that need to be taken care of too. We all, we all need our health to be taken care of and we need to be able to afford it. Long story short here, as, as an ec economic development practitioner, my job right now at LISC is to help funders, whether it be localities or foundations or private funders, design grant or loan programs that will support small businesses. And so the way that I think about those are, what are the needs of the actual community? What, how, how can businesses best serve the community? And what are the needs of the actual businesses and business owners? And in addition to helping them have access to capital, which is, is something necessary and complicated, um, how can we also provide access to um, business coaching and, and, and the types of um, mentorship that'll help these businesses thrive in their communities? Um, so when I think of infrastructure, I think of all the pieces, not just underground, but all of the pieces in a community that allow the community members to live there and thrive there. And, um, and it takes a lot of thoughtfulness. I wanna, um, I wanna, I wanna remember a quote that, um, that Melanie Warnick said when she, when she was on your podcast recently. I'm, I'm a big fan of her. She said, Every day you vote for the kind of community you want by how you spend your money. Her book and her thought leadership has really made an impact on me because I think, of, I think that that is so fundamentally true, not just with how I spend my money, but how I spend my time, um, how I spend my resources, for example, my children's labor even, they are required to go volunteer at the cemetery when we do. Um, when I walk into a neighborhood or when I walk onto my own block, so I've lived in this neighborhood for five and a half years now, and this is a neighborhood that was formerly, beginning in the late 1800s, 1890s, a streetcar neighborhood for Richmond. And it was thriving because a lot of the city's Eastern European immigrants um, came and, and, and lived here and worked in the city and took the streetcar. Um, but then, you know, around World War II, there was white flight. Those folks left the area. The streetcar was closed down. And this neighborhood became primarily a black neighborhood. It was also a neighborhood that was very much redlined and in this was, I mean, 
the redlining was all around this neighborhood. So folks, if, if you were a person of color, you were not likely to get a loan to buy a house or any kind of good terms on any loan um, in certain parts of the city, which really drove how demographics lived and where they lived. Anyway, what I walked into when I moved into this neighborhood was a very close-knit black community that has a lot of history. And when, it, when I came and joined this neighborhood, it was important for me to be aware of the, the assets that are pre-existing in this neighborhood. And those are deep, deep um, relationships between neighbors and families intergenerationally, thank you. Um, And there are institutions in this neighborhood such as funeral homes and stores and restaurants and churches that have been here for so long. And for me to come in and act like this is my new landscape to paint whatever I want onto it, my new... um, canvas um, isn't isn't honoring the history and the existing infrastructure of this neighborhood. Um, For me to respect this beautiful ecosystem is to come in and ask questions and learn about it and build trust and relationships with my neighbors and the local businesses and to participate in supporting all of the pieces of this ecosystem, sending my kids to the schools here, showing up. Um, I am 100% stealing the butterfly analogy. I hope that that wasn't trademarked because we are going to start using that all over the place. You know, thinking uh, about the body and how all of that is incorporated and and how it makes up the whole with the wings and the spots on the wings and the different colors and the gradations and how that all makes up the butterfly is, is just an amazing analogy, an amazing metaphor, an amazing visual. We're definitely going to be using that. Um, I just came up with it this morning. (laughs) Yesterday, uh, we had the webinar with um, a cohort of some female small-scale real estate developers from around the country, uh, and they are part of the downtown happy hour crew. They call themselves the power of cute, these ladies. And they talk about, in terms of their work for the power of cute and incremental development alliance, they refer a lot to your farm. Uh, Your farm is where you are planting those seeds, where you're tilling the soil, where you are putting your resources, investing your time and your money and your energy. And it's really clear, uh, again, Becca, in your answers that um, you are one of those people that gets to live your work every day. Um, If you had one piece of advice for the communities listening 
to this podcast today. Um, how, what is, where do you start in thinking about, um, let's say the wings on the butterfly? Because I think a lot of our communities are very used to thinking about the body, that that kind of commercial corridor. And it is the wings, and it is what makes up the wings that maybe gets less of a focus, but is so important to the work that they're doing. So how does someone start thinking about the wings? Most communities have done some amount of research about demographics and you know they've done mapping like richmond has done the richmond the richmond 300 plan which has extensive mapping but what i think about and what jane and i talk a lot about um, at lisk is what's what makes up a specific map area around a a commercial corridor and that's that's that drives our whole thematic um, approach to our work in the corridor is who is living in a particular area and how are they living so what is like just start by looking at the age of the buildings around an area how many of the how many homes are occupied? How many homes are not occupied? Um, what is the rental rate and, and why? Um, what in this particular community, um, who can and cannot afford to live there and why? And I think that when you start to think about who's living in the community and also who is not living in the community, it, it tells you very quickly what you might, or it, it begs you to look at what could be done differently to make a particular community more accessible and inviting to residents or non-residents. And things don't have to be, solutions don't have to be sweeping. Um, solutions that end up being successful are first done as models. And you can model things on a very small scale to see if they're successful. And and I suggest, you know, if you're if you're looking at your community and and it and it seems like there are there are problems that are too big to solve or um, you know challenges that are too hard to unlock, you just you have to just go and, and hang out at one of the local places in the community, even if it's outdoors with your mask on and literally just talk to everyone, hang out there for a while and talk to everyone. The people in the community have the solutions. They also know what they need. And so doing a, a high, you know, doing your own analysis to get a feel and then going in and truly listening um, be it formally, formally or informally, um, the community will tell you how to help them. That is an amazing answer. Uh, you know, we, we talk about that a lot with Main Street. Um, 
community engagement and stakeholder engagement, resident engagement, and that idea of not even doing an event or a big push, but just sitting down somewhere in the community and meeting as many people as you can meet that are coming, coming there to experience that space. And just having those conversations can be a really powerful place to start. Thank you for that. I know we are running low on time and I feel like, you know, there's just already so much here, so I won't, <laughs> won't belabor it. But we do have a question, uh, kind of a, a multiple part question that we end each podcast with. Um, so, you know, going back to uh, Melody Warnick and her concepts around place attachment. Um, tell us about a place that you are attached to why you are attached to that place and how you embody your attachment like what how do you show your attachment to that place and that place can be your couch that place can be the world and anything in between um oh, gosh this is um I'm going to keep it real simple. My front porch. You mentioned this in my bio. Uh, my front porch is small. We live in a 1,440 1, square foot home. Um, it's narrow and we have a, a narrow but, but lovely front porch. And we have chairs on it and a table and some candles that keep the mosquitoes away. Um, on that front porch is where my wife sits and plays her guitar. Um, it's where um, I work a lot of the time. And from my front porch, I talk to all of my neighbors. And I find out what's going on with them. And I learn when their daughters are graduating from high school or I learn when someone in the family passes away. And um, on that front porch is where I watch my kids play. And we live in the city, so you can't just let them run around. I have to be present. And um, so from my front porch, I can, I can enjoy my kids laughing and I can also make sure that they're safe. Um, but I'm connected to my family and my community and my wife's music at the same time. There is such a beautiful consistency in your answers. It is just so evident who you are. Thank you so much for your time and your thoughtfulness and wisdom today, Becca. It is always a pleasure. My pleasure. So join us next month when we will be talking to Alana Proust with Recast City, and we will be talking about small-scale production and food production and how that can impact your community as well. <laughs>